This month of March, we're looking at four sermons around the title of Fighting the Good Fight. This is a message that Paul delivered to his true son in the faith, to Timothy, to encourage Timothy to keep on keeping on. Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. And I think when Paul says this to Timothy, what he kind of means is, keep your integrity, the, the integrity of your faith, even when there's so many pressures in the world to squeeze you into its mold. Keep your integrity. But not only that, keep the integrity of the faith, this body of teaching and belief and practice that's been handed to Timothy, that Timothy was meant to hand to others all the way down the line till it gets to you and me. And we have the same responsibility, both to live in such a way in the world that we have integrity in our faith. So that's anti-hypocrisy, which is the big accusation against the church, right? So we want to have integrity in our personal faith. But we also have an opportunity and a responsibility to hand the faith to the next generation. How are we doing with that? That's part of the calling. And so Paul encourages Timothy to keep the faith and to fight the good fight of faith. Well, how are you supposed to do this? Last week, we looked at one key emphasis that Paul said that Timothy should never forget. And that is the scriptures. It seems obvious, but it's important to say because sometimes I think we tend, when we're facing a lot of different complicated ideas and ideologies, the first thing we do is we think, how do I feel about that? <laughs> or we think, how, how do I wrestle with that in my own mind? And one of the things Paul is saying to Timothy, your first question might be and should be, what does God's word say about that? And so Paul says to Timothy, don't forget the scriptures. You knew them as a child, and you knew them from your mother and your grandmother. You have a great heritage. Don't forget the scriptures. Hold on to these scriptures because they are God-breathed words. These God-breathed words are useful, and they're useful especially because they point us to Jesus. And that's ultimately where Paul is driving at. So that's the first thing, the first emphasis, the first uh, focus that we need to have if we're going to fight the good fight is hold on to the scriptures. Don't let go. Let's drive to God's word as we go through this time. The second thing, though, is this. Hold on to Jesus. Now, that, it seems like that should be first, right? I mean, Jesus is the ultimate. Um, but I put this second because the scriptures really drive us in this direction. As we go to the scriptures, then the scriptures take us to Jesus. And they take us to Jesus and the cross. So I'm going to read a couple of verses that Paul says uh, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and just verses 1 and 2. Uh, Paul has just said to them, and this wasn't a put down, but he said to them, not many of you were wise, not many of you were wealthy, not many of you were of noble birth, right? He wasn't putting them down. He was just saying that you're an ordinary crowd of people and you don't get to boast in a lot of things and that's okay. And so when I come to you, I'm going to know my audience and speak to you as such. And so uh, this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Now just hold, for, hold on for a minute, because how did Paul just forget everything and just talk about Jesus? 
Have you read Paul's letters at all? I mean, this guy was verbose. He talked a lot, it seemed, and he wrote a lot. And remember how expensive letters were to craft and write and, and deliver? And Paul wrote a lot of them. And so this was obviously something he had a lot to say. He had a lot to say about uh, the church. He had a lot to say about order in the church. Paul was a man of order in the church, and that comes across. He had a lot to say about family life, especially for an unmarried man. I mean, that was a big risk, but he has a lot to say about family life. Uh, he has a lot to say about Christian citizenship. He has a lot to say about spiritual gifts. We could go on and on. Paul has a lot to say. So what does he mean when he says, I forgot everything, and all I wanted to talk to you about was Jesus and the cross? Paul was also very well educated, wasn't he? He had like a double doctorate, kind of like some of you in here might have. Not me or Samuel yet. Samuel's working on it sometime. But Paul was well-educated. He had top-tier education. He also had a great Hebrew heritage. He could boast of being a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was also a Roman citizen, right? He knew the Greek poets and he quoted them. So he was knowledgeable in all kinds of languages and literature. I, I think Paul attended lots of athletic events, he went to the gymnasiums because so many of his, his illustrations come from uh, fighting or running or doing some action. And so Paul was a, a man of the culture as well. I'm sure if you sat down with Paul and brought up any topic, he would have something to say about it. He had lots to say. So what does he mean? I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Well, I want to read from Philippians chapter 3, because this gives us a really key understanding into Paul and why he focused on the cross of Jesus. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4 says this, Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. <laughs> I don't know if Paul was a little bit insecure sometimes, um, but sometimes when people were, were at him saying, you're not really an apostle, you didn't walk with Jesus all those three years, uh, he, he retorted back uh, certain things, and this is one of them. Listen to what he says. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure blood citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness uh, through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. Do you hear what he was saying? He gave us his, his resume, <laughs> and it's impressive. You ever do that when you're talking with people? You slip in a little bit of your resume just to kind of gain some traction in the conversation or the debate. Uh, and Paul does this a little bit, but then he says, you know what? I once thought all that was valuable. Then I met Jesus, and that's all I want. That's all I want. Because of what Jesus has done, give me Jesus. 
That's all there is, and that's all I want you to know about. If you forget everything else I say, remember Jesus on the cross and hold on to Jesus. It's beautiful, isn't it? In its simplicity, it's so profound as well to hold on to Jesus. And so to fight the good fight of faith, we must glory in the cross of Christ. That's where we find our glory. That's where we find our boasting is in the cross of Jesus. If we're to fight the good fight of faith, not only hold on to the scriptures, allow the scriptures to drive us to Jesus and hold on to Jesus. Ultimately, that's what we're called to hold on to. Last year, when we were going through the uh, renovation phase, which is obviously ongoing, <laughs> um, we have some very tenacious people in the congregation, uh, John and uh, where's Beth's husband, uh, Ross. He's not here today. I was looking for him. When I see him, I remember his name. And so Ross, and they're still working at our baptistry and they're making great progress. Continue to pray for favor with the city as we move forward on this. But one of my favorite aspects of the slight renovation we did up here was moving the cross. I don't know if you recognize this, if you've been around for a while, but the cross used to hang way up there. And when we installed the new sound system, this big speaker that hangs above me and makes me nervous every day. <laughs> I hope nobody has a, a switch on that. But um, this big speaker uh, kind of blocked the cross for people sitting at the back. And I always thought, well, that's a shame. And so one of my favorite things is that we took the cross down and Ross and some others backlit it and we put it where we could see it. And it's this constant reminder that we're to hold on to the cross, to know Jesus and him crucified. Now, I've sat through enough alpha presentations with Nikki Gumbel to realize that the cross is kind of a weird thing to hang in your church. I recognize that. In the early church, they probably didn't wear a cross around their neck, and they probably didn't hang a cross in their church because it was an instrument of torture and execution. So yeah, you wouldn't hang a guillotine around your neck or in the church or something like that. And so I understand that. And yet for us, it's become a meaningful symbol of the suffering and the salvation of Jesus. When Christine and I were working with a church in El Salvador years ago now, and we were uh, involved alongside the church of rebuilding a whole community that had been devastated by an earthquake like 10 years before we got there. People were living just in tarps and in what scraps of, of metal they could find. We we're working with Canadian Baptist Ministries. And the first time we got to go down, we were so excited. Fairly young team, we're enthusiastic. Some of us had construction backgrounds. We were gonna go down and fix their problems. And uh, we're so excited to get down there and just work, work, work until we built all these houses. And uh, we got down there and the first week we heard, we were actually just going to go around and listen to stories. We're like, that is a waste of time. What we didn't realize is that we had not yet learned the humility necessary to work alongside people uh, in the gospel and to rebuild their homes. And so we spent that week listening to the people of El Salvador and some of the pain and trauma they had gone through. We went into this one cathedral in the middle of uh, San Salvador, and it's a place where protesters at one time had fled into the church for refuge. And the, uh, the government troops went in and shot them in the church. 
And you could go in and still see the bullet holes and the different places they had kept in the pews and in the walls where, where gunfire happened in the church as people were trying to take shelter. And so we had to listen to these stories. But one of the things that really struck me is whether you're a Protestant or Catholic, it didn't seem to matter. What mattered often was having a cross with Jesus on it, which was a new thing for me as a, a proud Protestant. We don't believe Jesus is still hanging on the cross. He rose from the dead. And I asked someone, why, why do you still value that, the image of Jesus on the cross? And they said, because we know that Jesus suffered with us. Jesus was with us in our suffering. And that's the beauty of the cross. And I think that's why today it's appropriate for us to hang the cross up, to understand it, and to understand this symbol that God is with us in these times and in these trying times. Well, a preacher once said this, is a good quote, uh, life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. We hold on to the cross. We find our glory in the cross. Well, in Paul's time, there's two obstacles uh, to embracing the cross. And Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. And I think we still face the same obstacles today. There's lots of people that look at the cross and the story of the cross and say, that's so ridiculous. Who would have made that up? Uh, that's, that's foolishness to even believe that. And there's others in our world that looks at the cross like, like the Jewish people did, and, and they see it as an offense. It's shameful. Cursed is anyone that hangs on the tree. How can someone cursed bring salvation to us? And so the same obstacles, this idea of being offended by the cross or scoffing and mocking the cross is still an obstacle for those of us who relish the cross today. And yet Paul goes on to say that the message of the cross is foolish to those who are heading in the wrong direction. But we who are being saved know that it is the very power of God. So what is the message of the cross? And how is it powerful to save? In our footnotes class this morning, we very quickly in a condensed fashion looked at some, some responses to this question. But the, the question is this. How does the death of one man 2,000 years ago save us today? How does it have any impact in our life today? How does it help us uh, in, in any way, shape, or form? And so that's something that we have to wrestle with. Well, I want to give us briefly just three things, three angles to the cross. And there's many, many more, and I hope you go home and over this next week and over your lifetime, you reflect on the power of the cross and how it saves us. The first angle is this. The cross is the fulfillment of the covenant. It's the fulfillment of the agreement. There's an ancient practice of making covenant that thankfully we don't practice today. Like when we come together for weddings, uh, this would not be an appropriate thing to do because it involved taking an animal, and this is going to be gory and gruesome, I know, and splitting it down the middle from nose to tail. 
It's gross, right? <laughs> and then you take that animal and you put it on two sides of a bit of a hill and you let the blood run down. And as you make the agreement with someone else, you walk through the blood. And basically you're saying that if I break this covenant, what we've just done to this poor goat, <laughs> you get to do to me. If they break covenant, you know, so be it on my life. I swear literally on my life that I will not break this covenant. We learn about this a little bit in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham and God. And if you read that passage, I encourage you to do it, even though it's a little grotesque. Uh, but read through it because you'll see something very unique. In the end, Abraham doesn't walk through the covenant uh, of, of, um, of the blood. Only God does. Only God passes through. And that's a clue to what's about to happen. Because all through the Old Testament into the New, we realize this. That God, in terms of the covenant, in terms of the promises, God is the promise keeper, and we are the promise breakers. That's very evident all the way through. We are the covenant breakers. God is the covenant keeper. And over and over again, we're reminded of that. The Bible has a word for it. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all covenant breakers, and that's a huge burden to carry. And so then every sacrifice that comes under the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament, and there were a lot of them, they could never pay off that debt. They could never fully substitute for that debt. And yet they were a reminder to us of our obligation to the covenant. Over and over again, they were a reminder of what we owed, a debt that we couldn't pay. Until one day, John the baptizer looks up, sees Jesus, and says what? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's the solution. That's the biblical solution to our problem of covenant breaking. We could never pay back that debt. God knew that. I think that's why he walked through the, the blood and Abraham didn't. Because God, in the end, keeps both sides of the covenant for us. That's the amazing thing of the cross. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 9. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. This is the glorious good news, that God keeps both sides of the covenant for us so that we're free. We we're, we're no longer need to be ashamed. We no longer need to carry guilt because we're freed from the obligations of the covenant because covenant, Jesus completely fulfills it. So where Adam and all of us failed, Jesus succeeded on our behalf. And that's one way to understand the cross, that Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross, so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's what we find in 1 Peter chapter 2. So in this cosmic, spiritual sense, we are free from the punishment under the law. We are free from guilt, free from shame. That's what the cross does for us. But here's a second angle at the cross. Not only does the, is the cross the fulfillment of the covenant, but the cross is also the victory over evil. At the cross, Colossians chapter 2 says this, 
Jesus, Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The victory of Jesus and the coronation of Jesus, the crowning of Jesus as king, didn't happen as resurrection. That's the declaration of his victory. It actually happened at the cross. At the moment when Jesus seemed to be the weakest point, that's when he won the victory. And that's a lesson for all of us, in fact, as we think about how do we win the victory over evil. Christ's saving work consists in de defeating the evil powers that affect and enslave all of humanity, and he won that victory at the cross. It's as if the, the evil powers were coming against humanity. Like, grab your torch and pitchforks. We're going to go get them. And as they come up, they find that Jesus has already paid the debt, that everybody is actually free, that there's no charges against them, and now they're just left with flickering torches and pitchforks for no reason whatsoever. And they just look stupid. That's what happens at the cross. Jesus makes a public spectacle of anyone and any power that wants to bring accusations against us. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I love the story in the New Testament when the woman caught in adultery is brought before Jesus. Do you remember the story? She's brought before Jesus and all these, these guys gather around and they're, they're thirsty for blood. They, 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 they want to see an execution, justice. And what does Jesus do? He bends down and he writes in the sand. I'm not sure what he wrote. Maybe he wrote all the sins of, you know, Johnny hasn't paid his taxes. And, you know, you know he's, I don't know what he's writing there, but whatever he did, it was effective. Because one by one, the, the stones drop. And also when Jesus looks up and he sees the woman standing there and he says, where are your accusers? And she says, there's, there's no one here. No one to condemn you. And Jesus says, neither do I. <laughs> what a beautiful image of what he was about to do on the cross for all of us. Where are your accusers? Do you ever have accusers in your own mind? You're not good enough. You're not worthy. You've sinned again and again and again. And Jesus at the cross, he says, I've won the victory over all of that. And your accusers now just look foolish and they're just going to slink away into the darkness where they came from. So the cross is also this victory over evil. But the cross also exposes the very real systemic evil that's present in humanity. Do you see Jesus doing that over and over again? Even with all those men gathered around because they wanted to stone that woman that they caught in adultery. How did they do that, by the way? What were they up to that they caught her in adultery, right? It's a terrible thing to think about. And Jesus just exposes the evil of these men. Well, Jesus does the same at the cross. He exposes the horrors of the crowd. The crowd was yelling, crucify him, crucify him. They, the crowd, I think, they thought, they were convinced in their own mind that Jesus was guilty. And they wanted a verdict. And they wanted to see him crucified. But then what happened after Jesus rose from the dead? And after the Spirit came? When, Jesus, or when Peter started preaching to the same crowd, Jesus started preaching and he said, this same Jesus that you crucified, God has vindicated. And the crowd goes, wow, we killed an innocent man. And they were horrified at their own evil. 
And they said to Peter, what should we do now? And Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Change your thinking about Jesus and follow him. And they did. And so the cross also exposes the evil in society, the ugly side of society. And when we see that, we want to run to Jesus. So that's two things. Cross is the fulfillment of the agreement of the covenant, and the cross is also the victory over evil. One last important thing that I'll point out. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. This, these words might be familiar to you, but I'm going to invite you to go a little bit deeper with what this really means. Romans chapter 5 says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's so incredibly important. Hold on to that verse. John 3.16, anybody know it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now note that that verse does not say, for God was so angry at humanity that he killed his child. We have to be careful as we communicate with the gospel that we don't portray God the Father as some angry you know, person that's just looking for vengeance. And Jesus steps up and says, oh, just wait a minute, God, you know, wait a minute, Dad. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take it for them. And somehow appeases the Father. That's not what the Bible says at all. It was while we're still sinners that God loved us. Even in our sin, even before we repent, God still loves us and sends Jesus for us. One of the ways to understand what's happening at the cross is to understand what the cross is trying to fix. And to understand that, we have to go back to the garden. We have to go back to Genesis chapter 1 to 3. And in the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, let me ask you a question. Whose heart changed? After that sin, it wasn't God's heart. It was Adam and Eve's heart that changed. God's heart has always been consistent. His love and his grace and his favor toward us has always been consistent. It's our hearts that changed away from God. And so the cross isn't an attempt to appease God, to make him happy or affect a change with God. The cross is meant to to affect a change with us. It's to change our heart. God already has a great opinion of us. He's made us in his image. But we don't often have a good opinion of God. And so God's plan is to demonstrate his love toward us so that our opinion of God might change. John chapter 15 says this, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's what God does. Remember the story of the sometimes called the prodigal son. Call it the lost son. I actually like to call the story the loving father. The story of the loving father. Because really it is all about the father. And and the story goes that, you know, this, this father had two sons and one decided that he wanted his inheritance. It's basically saying to the dad, I wish you were dead because I want my money now. And the dad gave the son his money. What does the son do with it? Goes off and squanders it. He, he blows it on all kinds of things. And then he finally comes to his senses, and he's coming home to his father, rehearsing in his head what he's going to say, willing at that point just to become a servant in his father's household. What's his father doing the whole time? Is his father pacing back and forth in the story? Father saying, Martha, get out your wooden spoon. When that boy gets back, I'm going to give him a whooping. That's not what's happening in the story, Right? 
What's happening in the story with the father? What's he doing? The indication, every indication is that he's waiting for his son's return. That he's looking down the road, longing for his son to come back home. And as soon as he sees the sign of his son, he doesn't wait for him to repent or turn or anything. He runs to him. That's the most profound, one of the most profound images that Jesus gives us of the love of the Father that is consistent for us. It's you and me that need to turn around, have to have a change of mind in how we understand God. It's you and me, it's our hearts that have been changed, that we've turned away from God. He has never turned away from us. And the cross declares that even while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God demonstrates his love. So here's the invitation this morning. Come to the cross of Jesus. Whether you're coming for the very first time, we talked about this this morning of, of how easy it is just to get caught up in church culture, to go along with the flow, and, and to assume that this is what it means to be a Christian. And yet to be a real follower of Jesus is to have this cross experience that you're able to say along with Paul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me to have that personal uh, encounter with the cross of Christ. If you've never had that, I would like to help you to experience that. But also just come to the cross again. If you've ignored it for a while or forgotten about it, come to the cross of Jesus because it gives us so much of God's love and his desire for us in this world. So fighting the good fight is never won through acts or words of violence. Rather, it is won through the self-sacrifice in the service of others. It's our love that exposes the evil, the greed, the lust, and the violence in our world and calls the world to see God differently through the cross of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, there are times that we wrestle to understand uh, the cross and how that you worked your salvation through your son on it. But help us to see you through the cross. Help us to see your love. Help us to see your grace. Help us to embrace the freedom from guilt and from shame. Help us to live for others because of what you have done for us. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.